Hey, Mike Bishop. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Uh, just giving an intro every time. What, what we're doing is uh, we're trying to framework conversation around justice, criminal justice, mass incarceration, and all the realities pertaining to that. Trying to create conversations so the church can be familiar with talking about these things so that they can listen to other people who have engaged in it and are currently engaging in it um, through a lot of different avenues. And uh, hopefully it would, it would help people learn and grow and we actually believe change is possible. And so, yeah, so it starts with listening. And we know you got a beautiful story. We know you got a beautiful heart. We know uh, that God's done a lot of beautiful things. So yeah, bro, thank God. Start wherever you want, man. Like, yeah, wherever you want. Well, first of all, I just want to say I'm, I'm honored to be here, honored to be a small part of what Serge is doing, uh, your ministry precedes you, your reputation. And I think I think when you talk about what, what real gospel-centered ministry is, this is this is where this lands. This is at the heart of Jesus, at the heart of the gospel, restorative, redemptive, and uh, absolutely non-negotiable. If a church is going to be effective in today's polarized society, this has got to be at the table of consideration, process, and discernment. We have got to engage because there are literally, I believe, thousands upon thousands that we've lost and will continue to lose um, um, if, if, if there's not a, an ecclesial response to the, to the lack of justice and there's not a call, a clarion call to address the injustice that is prevalent and the philosophical approaches being utilized to further oppress people of color, in particularly margin space. So this is a justice issue at its heart. It's, um, it's, it's, the, it's the margin, addressing the margin to move to the center to find King Jesus. And that's, that's my hopes. The outcome of this narrative will go and be, I pray that the Spirit move upon it and that somebody would be convicted to engage and support your initiative. Um, I'm very familiar. I mean, first of all, personally, my father served 25 years. I grew up in prison. Um, my mother served seven years in prison, so I grew up in prison, literally. My father was on tour at Elmira, Clinton, um, Valhalla, uh, Greenhaven Penitentiary, and my mother served time at Bedford Penitentiary for women. I grew up in a household that was Blacktino, where it's half Black, half Puerto Rican, Latino. So my mother's side of the family is from the Carolinas, and my father's side is from the Caribbean, Manatee, Puerto Rico. So I have two oppressed people groups that make up my DNA. And our margin space was Spanish Harlem in the 60s and 70s. So I grew up in the barrio of Spanish Harlem. And I am um, black Tino is how I identify. Oh, I'm both and, not one or. But growing up in a context of a social reality like that, I know what it is to go to level four maximum security facilities and equate that with daddy. And I know what it is to go behind the wall and equate that with mommy. And then I know what it is to live with my grandparents who don't, are not English speakers uh, and trying to navigate through the poverty and the reality of what it was to live in black and Spanish Harlem in the 70s when heroin ran the streets. So uh, in that context, I grew up and drifted in the streets, got caught up and I had a friend that got saved at a church called Times Square and uh, became a transit cop and uh, led me to what's called Teen Challenge, a ministry of advocacy started by the late David Wilkerson and Nikki Cruz. Well, David Wilkerson really was one word to call. And what he was doing was restorative justice and advocacy before there was actually a theoretical term for it. When he lobbied the court system, the judicial system in New York State to send him these young addicts that were strung out on heroin, send them to him instead of sending them to jail. 
And what happened was that uh, David Wilkerson started two ministries. One, everybody knows about of which I'm a student uh, and graduate of Teen Challenge Training Center. But the other one, many people don't know about. It was called the Christian Urban Renewal Project, started by Faith Brown. Faith Brown was the sister, younger sister to Gail Brown, who was the secretary to David Wilkerson at Times Square for many, many years. And so Faith Brown was the first executive director, and she worked and lived in, in um, the South Bronx on Fox Street and was interviewed by 60 Minutes back then because of the rampant drug addiction. And this is a famous quote from 60 Minutes. They asked her, because she was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white woman living in black and Spanish South Bronx, and these, these reporters came and said, what's the worst thing you've ever seen in the South Bronx? Really trying to hyphenate poverty and further um, really destroy, uh, you know, margin space as a, as, a, as, a, as a dignified community where people of color were striving to get out of. This is just before the Bronx was burning, Fort Apache, the Bronx, a famous movie. And they asked Faith Brown, what's the worst thing you've ever seen in this community? Expecting her to say, well, the worst thing was a, a black man robbing a white woman or a black man robbing a brown woman. Faith Brown looked at the camera and she says, six white officers beating almost to death a Puerto Rican heroin addict who was so strung out that he was trying to get a fix, but they pulverized this young man, put him in a hospital. We don't know if he's gonna make it. The worst thing I've ever seen was six white officers pulverize a young addict who needed Jesus, not, 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 not to be put in the ICU unit in the name of justice. That wasn't justice. That was trauma to that family and that was further uh, indictment against the system and how it deals with people of color within their communities. So the justice system, right, needs to really learn what justice is back then. Yeah. Fast forward, a Christian Urban Rural Project turns into Seekers Christian Fellowships, and then turns into, in the 70s, Urban Youth Alliance. So I had gone through Teen Challenge myself, uh, had I strayed into addiction, crack cocaine, heroin, and it was the age of that addiction. How old, how old was you? I was, I was a teenager. I was uh, 16, 17, and 18. By the time I was 18, I was already on my second son being born, already married to Elizabeth, and already lost in, in drugs, lost in the scene. Um, Stick-up kid uh, was the term back then. I don't even know what they call it now. But I was, a, I was just a little criminal in the making. And having two parents that were incarcerated for homicide, I was fulfilling the statistical data that was already, yeah. that was a prophetic utterance over me. Yeah. You come from that, you're gonna be that. And my friend David Velasquez had an encounter with Jesus and led me to Teen Challenge. He said to me, basically, either I arrest you or I turn around and I get you to who can help you. And when I walked into Teen Challenge, that first day I was there, I'll never forget, it was, it was, um, it was December, um, and Nikki Cruz was preaching in New Haven, Connecticut, and they took us to, to New Haven to see him preach uh, as an induction center. Induction centers where they get you off the street, clean you up, get you into the program. And I heard this man preach, and I didn't understand anything he was saying until he got to the altar call. And when he said, if you're here, and you're tired, and you're lost, and you need Jesus, and bro, I don't know how, I don't even remember how, from the back of that church, I was in the front of the church, and I was giving my life to Jesus. That changed the trajectory of my life altogether. I then wound up, I then wound up 
and Jane Street and, and uh, 495 Jane Street, Bridgeport, Connecticut, for the first two months of my induction. Then I graduated that process and went to Quintard Avenue and South Norwood, Connecticut. Then after that, I wound up in God's Mountain in Roosburg, Pennsylvania. And that's where I got to meet David Wilkinson in person. And he was giving us Bible studies. And there was back then the Berean uh, Assemblies of God movement. Oh, yeah. And they were taking us to different churches. I wasn't a church kid. I grew up in the street. And so, but they understood that deliverance ministry and justice went hand in hand, not just for the person or the individual, but for the system. From the onset, David approached the system, just like when you look at the Bible, every prophet approaches a king. Moses approaches the Pharaoh, um, Samuel, Nathan, every prophet of the Lord speaks to a king. That king represents a system and calls for the shalom of the city, shalom for Israel. So you see David in that same prophetic pathway. And then in Team Challenge, I, I wound up uh, having favor and grace, and they took me from mopping, they put me in the library. And that library, I learned how to read. And then in that library, I got my GD. And then from there, I got my GD. And then they sent me to, uh, I almost made it into Valley Forge, which is the Valley Forge, which is the Assemblies of God um, 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 Academy, if you will. And so, but I wound up coming back uh, because I had children. They were small. My, my wife was, we were teenagers when we met. We were teenagers having kids. And she's like, Mike, I need you. And I came back after graduation. That was 1993. And then I walked into this little Pentecostal church and this guy was preaching. And the guy says, if you want a job, come see me after the service. Check this out. The dude had done 11 years in Sing Sing Penitentiary. And he hired me. And so because he went to jail, I trusted what he was saying. <laughs> Not that he was a, a Jesus believer, but I said, look, this is another situation where if God could touch Nikki and God touched Miguel, and then Miguel said, look, come see me, da -da -da, gang bang or whatever. And I, and I walked up to him, and the next week I was working at Goodwill Industries, and bro, the trajectory that God had me on, I was just exposed to so many brilliant mentors and people um, and able to advocate for other people coming out of drug addiction and out of the justice system. And so after that, I wound up in the national circuit getting hired by a consultant for Curtis and Associates, a Nebraska-based consulting firm started by Dr. Dean Curtis, Gene Ross, and Dot Henry. They were the think tank for theory, think tank for theory, motivational theory and business uh, theory at the University of Nebraska in the early 90s. And they wound up just adopting me. I don't know, I always get adopted by these people. And then I got adopted by them. And I wound up being a national consultant and hit 37 states teaching motivational theory, synergistic concepts. Went through the Masters of Philosophy program at University of Nebraska through them. And then after that came back and then started seminary uh, with the Latino, Concilio Latinoamericano, Latin American Council of Churches. And then did seminary undergrad there and then went to Alliance Theological Seminary for MDiv and Urban Ministry and then post-grad work with the Christian University. But long story short, throughout that pathway, I was always working in health and human services situations and scenarios. So I wound up working uh, as a deputy director of vocational rehabilitation services, supervising social workers and pursuing their license and CSWs to do work. So they would come in, do their residencies with us. And then I was approached by the Department of Corrections um, uh, in that work and then wound up supervising an alternative to incarceration, an alternative to detention program, which are pathways for young adults between 16 to 24. So instead of them doing the time that they might have gotten caught 
doing a crime, instead of them going there, they would come to us instead of Rikers or Juvenile Detention Center Horizons. And so working with them and then helping them reintegrate back into society without recidivating. You know, what, 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 what has you go back to jail as an inmate or a returning citizen is the people, places, and things that you leave without knowing how to process and the education that you get behind the wall. And so, you know, young kids were getting caught with a bag of smoke, bag of weed, reefer, I don't know what they call it today. I'm an old school guy <laughs> now at this point. They get caught, and now cannabis is legal, yeah. which is like, for me, it's really, it's really troubling how hypocritical our, our laws are and legislature in this country when it comes to people of color. Because you know how many people of color were arrested and given mad time, major time, because of the Rockefeller law that was passed in New York, selling, distributing marijuana. Now somebody has a bright idea, they legalize it for tax purposes, and all those people that went to jail. Restorative justice calls every state to reevaluate how they interacted with drug um, pharmaceutical distribution, and many people have been released after much argument and advocacy because of, uh, because of getting caught selling you know, uh, cannabis. But there's still thousands of lives that were destroyed by a judicial system that was harsher on margin space people, people of color. So let me give you for an instance. In the ATI, ATD, I learned this. I learned that a young African-American boy caught with a bag of weed will get five years probation, right? When a young, same kid of, of a majority culture, white, and First Avenue gets caught with the same bag of weed, they'll get a slap on the hand. They'll get a ticket, right? But the black kid, 15, is going to be expected not to recidivate, not to break another law for the next five years. The same courts distributing a very unbalanced uh, outcome for the same crime because there's no one calling the courts to task when it comes to what is balanced restorative justice for this age demographic, taking into consideration the economic background, where they live, how they're brought up, what's their family makeup, what's their family of origin. None of that is taken into consideration. But because he's black and from the Bronx, five years probation. He's white from First Avenue and 86th Street, slap on the wrist. So this is what you mean, because as I, I don't want to assume every listener understands this yet. Disproportionate effects for black and brown communities. Absolutely. This is what you're talking about. This is what I'm talking about. This is historical. There's laws. There's laws. That happened during are, the war on crime and the war on drugs in the 70s, 80s. There's laws that literally reflected what you're talking about. Absolutely. And it has caused generational damage. And young people who have been uh, rightly arrested for committing the crime, wrongfully judged, and the outcomes of their verdicts have only perpetuated further poverty. And the violence of poverty is attached to unjust laws that are hyphenated toward African-American and brown, right, margin uh, populaces. It's not the same equator when you look at the white communities. And so there's gotta be some form of reform, even within the criminal justice system, to, uh, to um, uh, address the balance beam that is not just, it's not equal. It's not the same law for the same crime for these people groups. That has contributed to so much of society's laments and social ills. So check this out, what am I saying to you? I'm saying to you that our judicial system itself, the way it's been facilitated, has contributed to poverty historically, addiction historically, and to the recidivism that we're saying that we want to stop. 
Recidivism is a nice technical word that says we want to stop the opening of the, uh, the door that keeps letting people in and out of jail. Okay, you take a 15-year-old kid, comes from a household where the father's in jail, mother's on drugs, Spanish-speaking grandparents raising them, or another family member raising them. Hello? That's the demographic I come from. And I would have got caught up in that same system had it not been for the intervention of the gospel in my own life. And then I learned what I came from. I learned who I was. I learned that I was the Imago Dei and should have been dignified and that there was another way for me to live other than a way of crime. And so in supervising those ATI and ATD and learning the, the injustice that was happening within the justice system caused us to be intentional about hiring advocates and lawyers that would go to court and do exactly what David Wilkerson did. Advocate for young people that were facing menial crimes uh, and, and, and turn around and say, instead of sending them to Rikers, send them to us. Instead of sending them to Horizon, send them to us. 86% of the people that made it to Teen Challenge and didn't go to jail never went back on drugs. 85% of the kids that they sent to us at Urban Youth Alliance and Bronx Connect, ATI, ATD, never went back to jail. Why? Because we didn't just provide services for them. A full wraparound case management uh, a program was wrapped around where we would, we would, we would stand and, inter and um, mentor and bring in the families. Here comes the restorative justice. Apologize to the family that you violated. Apologize to the family that you sold drugs to. Apologize to the family member that you violated. Let's come into the same space and let's talk through what does it look like to be family post-infraction. And how can we now learn from this, grow from this, and avoid this from happening? When I tell you that that intentionality brought wholeness, brought resurrection to families that were dying and or dead, and kids were actually forgiven and extended grace and wanted that, wanted order, wanted discipline, wanted their families to be together, when they were given the opportunity have a, a, a have a family second chance, go to Rikers, go to Horizon, when they chose their families, and 10 out of 10 kids want restoration, especially those that are aging out of the foster care system. They, they want a connection. They're thirsty for a connection. And instead of finding a family in the street with MS-13, Latin Kings, Nieta, Blood Scripts, they find a family in the church, and they find themselves, what? Shifting paradigms from this is the way it is to this is the way it can yeah, they be. see a new narrative. And they see a new narrative yeah. unfolding before them. And they surrender themselves to that. I can tell you, I've seen so many lives turned around. I was recently on a public broadcasting network, and they were asking me, what would you tell somebody? God is able, God is able, no matter how bad the situation is, to turn things around. No one is ever so far gone until the church believes that, until Christians start to really believe that he is a God of resurrection. We're going to see our generations die in addiction, through the poverty and violence, through the educational inequity that we allow to happen within our communities, right? What do I mean educational inequity? Because this also plays a part. When our school districts aren't funded or underfunded, when our teachers are not treated as the professionals and the ambassadors to another lifestyle, when we give monies to the other side of the tracks and say, well, those people generationally, then we ask questions like this. And I'm not going to try to get too philosophical no, and give too much it. of my opinion. But I want to say, then we say, well, where are their fathers? Where are all the black fathers? Why can't we find black men teachers? Because we keep throwing them in jail. 
No one asking for them. Why do they abdicate the responsibility of raising and staying in the marriages? When you raise a generation of fatherless boys, they don't know how to be men. Let me tell you something. My grandmother was brilliant. Mi negra, mi negra bella. My black beauty, I will call her. Third grade education from Mega Baja Puerto Rico. Could barely read and write in English, but understood Spanish well. Has she been given the opportunity of a higher education? This woman could have been a mathematician because math was her language. She was absolutely brilliant. And while, while all the statistical data says, well, she's just a, an immigrant, right, from the Caribbean, right, and can only have a, a, a warehouse job, she told me, el único cosa que yo quiero es termina con la escuela. The only thing I want you to do, Mikey, is to graduate. So when I graduated from Teen Challenge and then went to college and then went to post-grad, and when she came to the hooding ceremony for my doctoral program, and I got off that platform, my entire family, first one to graduate college, first one to go to grad school, first one to do post-grad work, and my grandmother said, te dije, I told you, I told you that you were not stupid. I told you that you could if you wanted to. I told you that if you held on to Jesus, you would see a different life than all of us. And I said, Mami, recuerda cuando tú me dijiste, Mami, remember when you told me this? I took your word for it. Y ahora soy doctor, profesor, because of you, Mami. Of course, because of Jesus. But I had a grandmother who had no resources, but prophesied resources into my life believed for me a future that I could not see for myself. When I looked at her daughter, my mother, addicted to dope and lost in jail, and my father, addicted to drugs and lost in jail, my grandmother gave me hope. Mi negra bella, my black beauty, prophesied, and she believed, and because she believed, I believed. If somebody would just believe in these kids, if somebody would go to jail, in the juvenile detention center, and look at these broken lives and say, I believe that there's life after this. And you petition, send them to me, and I'll work with them, and I'll work with their families, and I'll help them build their families. Full wraparound case management is the secret sauce to reintegrating returning citizens back into a successful, victorious life. Can you talk about that more so people understand what that means? What is sure. wraparound? Wraparound is, we, and as you use the same philosophical approach in our charter schools, the Bronx Committee promise that we have. Okay, okay. So full wraparound services, I don't just deal with the returning citizen. I deal with their mom, I deal with their dad, I deal with their siblings. If they have children, we deal with their baby mama, their baby daddy. We deal with that on purpose. Part of the mandate in the, of the program is that they come in, and who is your family profile? Everybody has to be called to the table to talk about what you did. Yup, what you did. And when I do that, you now have ownership over your life. I'm not making you feel bad, though you're gonna feel conviction about the crimes you committed or the things that you've done. But when I give you the opportunity to man up or woman up and say, I did this and I was wrong and how I did it and I didn't listen, but I don't wanna do it anymore. I don't wanna hurt my family anymore. And when they get the opportunity to say, I know I was wrong, mom. I know I was wrong, dad. I know I was wrong, grandma. I know I was wrong, Susie Q. I, I wanna be a father to my son. When young men are given the opportunity to man up, they'll do it. They'll do it. And when the family's there to say, if you will change and you surrender your life to a different way, I can stand with you now. I can believe in you again. 
and we can do this together. And then I call the family into accountability because if you really love him, then you can't, this is not the time to walk away. If you stand with him, this is your blood. This is your son. This is your daughter. This is, right, and together you can survive. He can be who he needs to be. You can be who you need to be. And we're going to help resource that. Now hear me, it's not just about feeling good and having a conversation, but it's about for the next nine months, we're going to have meetings where we're going to talk about what went wrong, what happened, and really provide the soul care necessary and the therapeutic intervention necessary to talk about addiction, to talk about conflict resolution, to talk about abdication of responsibility as a, as a, as a, as a person of the family. And when they start to form this community, right, identity, now he has accountability beyond the streets. He has another narrative and another voice that's talking to him that does what? Motivates him. Now he's got a purpose. That motivation becomes purpose. Now let's introduce them to Jesus and understand that, you know, he already did the work and that miracles, signs, and wonders follow those who follow him. This is where it becomes very prophetic because the Bible teaches us he did not choose the wise. He chose the foolish. He chose the weak. He chose all that would be rejected by society. Bro, that's everybody that's in the joint. That's everybody that's in yeah. jail. And it confounds the wise. And it confounds <laughs> the wise. Because now you call me Reverend Dr. Bishop Professor. And I'm all those things. Yeah. Husband, father, son, brother, uncle, deal. I was lost in drugs. I was lost. And now I've been found. And now I can go places in that foundness and the love of Jesus where I could not go because of my addiction. I could not be, and my problem was not my addiction. My problem was sin in me. And when I surrender my life to Jesus and that grace that's received and the supernatural grace redefines the trajectory. Every time I talk about it, I get emotional because 2 Corinthians 5, 16, 17, if any man or woman, right? It's the Bible says that they are a new, if to accept Christ, they are a new creation. In the word Greek, sozo, a creation that never was. I don't, I don't get a second chance. I get a whole other opportunity because I am no longer that person. I'm no longer Mike the dope fiend. I'm no longer Mike the crackhead. I'm no longer Mike the criminal. I'm no longer Mike the adulterer. I'm no longer Mike the thief. I'm, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus because that blood washes me whiter than snow. And my name is no longer on a, the bad list. It's on the eternal list of eternal life. And nothing I do from this moment on can erase that because of the grace that flows from Calvary to me. So you see what just happened there? We went from criminal, clinical, to now theologically differently aligned into a new life, into a new opportunity. And when that happens in the family, and they see the fruit of transformation in his life. You're this, that, I'm, I was like, wipe the tears away, don't lose it, stay composed. Because you're talking, oh man, they just come, I can't help it. Yeah, that's okay. But you're talking about a gospel that is personal, transformative, that regenerates our hearts. But you talked about that after you talked about a gospel that regenerates systems and structures 
that harm our brothers and sisters. And you're holding them both. Like you're, you're saying like Jesus is the one and the only way. And he's what makes, he's what brings restoration to the world and to ourselves. But you're holding these tensions of like, we need the transformation of our hearts to become a new creation in Christ. But we also need our systems to be reformed, to look like his kingdom. And we need both of them simultaneously. Like we don't just ignore one because we say this one doesn't matter. Just keep it to the gospel. You're saying these are both the gospel, both of these things. And when I think about this system, I'm like, but how do we do, how do we humanize our brothers and sisters enough to be like, yeah, we need Jesus. We need the restoration of Jesus in our lives and our hearts and in these places where these structures, these systems, the way this has been run and set up, it is harming our neighbors. And so, but that's when like what you just did without even trying, Bishop, Dr. Reverend, is you, you're like, they, the gospel holds both of them. And I'm like, yes, I, that's the type of gospel I want to live into. That's how we see the kingdom of God come. So I'm like, yes, so good. You know, you know, I'm like, so the kingdom, the kingdom is matter. The kingdom of God is manifest. Everything you said is so, the way you connected the dots there is so powerful. And, And what's the missing element is the church. Because I'm talking about this happening in a parachurch context. I preached this morning at a church, Brazilian church. And I said to them, I, I'm, I'm serving the church today, going on 40 years, but it's not the church that saved me. It was an element of the church. It was an extension of the church through a ministry that wasn't embraced by the church. Here goes the dichotomy. Here comes the tension. This is why we're having this conversation. Because the church should be the entity that facilitates restorative justice, yeah. that embraces the family and provides the aftercare, but also is speaking truth to power to the system. It's the church. It is the kingdom of God that faces the kingdom of darkness prophetically and says, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Pharaoh, you cannot kill any more of my black babies. We will not take these black babies and throw them into the Nile because you're scared of what's coming, of who's coming. Come, Jesus, come. Because literally what we're looking at is a generational genocide that's been authorized even by our own governments and systems. And the church has been a sleeping giant, right? Fulfilled with her myopic expressions of faith by staying in the building. When you look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it gives us imagery that says we're supposed to leave the building. Acts chapter 2. All the dunamis and dynamo of the presence of the Holy Spirit manifest in the upper room. Pero contra, that power is not given for that room. That power is given for the street. And it's not until the church leaves the upper room and its pontification and its higher theological siloed narrative to pour out into the street where miracle signs and wonders now attract those that are in the dark. Revival and the gifts of the Spirit are manifest not for the saved, but for the unsaved, for those that are incarcerated, for those that are in addiction, for those that are wondering aimlessly, is there a God that loves me? Is there a God that loves me? And the clarion call to the church is for such a time as this to respond to this conversation and say part of our outreach, our evangelism, our intentional formation and expansion of the kingdom of God as we're going to go and take back what the devil has stolen 
within the construct of the Department of Corrections in its local state and context. So to God be the glory, what David Wilkerson started didn't even have a, didn't have a language. There wasn't a language to identify what's the ministry proper that he's doing and facilitating. And in one way, he went into wildfire with advocating against addiction. But in the other way, alternative to incarceration and alternative to detention, an alternative to eternal hellfire and separation from God for all eternity. That's what the church is supposed to facilitate. That's the language, an alternative to hell and literally the subjugation of sin on this side of eternity. The job, the, the job of the church is to be that presence, to be the entity of transformation. To be that family. To be that family. To be that family. We lose kids to the street because they find a family, and then what happens when they get incarcerated? They find another family. And the brutality of that narrative comes out and perpetuates further, further perpetuates. Our system has contributed largely to the issue of brokenness, marginalization, and the violence of poverty within black and brown and other communities. Because it's not even just black and brown. It's not just black and brown anymore. Not, not in the United States. Western narrative is way more multi-ethnic and multicultural, multi-class than we want to even own oh, yeah. from the socio-political narratives that are happening over the pathway, you know, pathways of, of, of commercial media. And it's time for the church to wake up and step up. Wake up. Wake up and step up. When you say that, I think one of the opportunities of the church is how do we, how are we creative in loving our neighbors? And I think when I think about, which, cause I want you to talk about this, the school oh, yeah. um, and just these creative ways of how do we seek to love our neighbors and bring renewal to our communities. And the church has this, it's, it's in us, but how do we creatively venture into these partnerships and options to create opportunities? And that's, so can you talk about Absolutely. that? Absolutely. We, we had to be creative in the South Bronx uh, highest social ills in the Mott Haven section of the Bronx, specifically highest teen pregnancy, highest gang violence, highest poverty level, highest unemployment, over 152 languages in this one space, right? That's like a total, perfect storm of issues. And on top of that, compound that with systemic oppression. I say systemic oppression, I mean the racial profiling of young and black and brown and others that's and this is the issue. This part of the issue is this. Let's talk about creativity, but let's, let's call the issue out. Police departments are absolutely necessary to govern civil society. But the police department or the police force are there to partner with this community. Policing a community is knowing and loving and caring for the well-being of community. In essence, and at the heart of theory, that's why we have police department and law enforcement. Not every cop is a racist, not every cop is a bigot, not every uh, police officer is out to get black and brown kids. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a few, it's a minority that messed it up for the majority, and I truly believe this. And let me be on the record of saying that. I'm not anti-cop, I'm not anti. The cops are there for a purpose, law enforcement is there for a purpose. However, when the law enforcement entity in a given state become more of a militarized, empowered entity versus a community policing entity, there's a difference. Yes. 
stop and frisk, racial profiling, stop them if they're brown, stop them if they're black, pull them over if they're black, they're black in the hoodie and they walk into the community, stop them. That's when you get the Trayvon Martins, the Eric Gardners, the Michael Browns. Come on, let's talk about it. Own this thing. They weren't policing. They were militarizing a community. And the, when, you, when you turn into a military force, it's no longer a community. It's now occupied territory. Come on. It's occupied territory. Let's call it what it is. Our law enforcement should not be occupying the territory of our communities. They should be policing our communities. That means know the clergy, know the, know the nonprofits that are providing services. That means partner with the schools, right? The other thing is that when you take uh, a militarized philosophy or philosophical approach to governance of educational districts, you turn the school into a, 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 a pre-county uh, a, a jail. We have got to learn that there's a huge difference. <clears throat> Excuse me. So creative approaches to not just evangelizing, but being community transformation uh, relevant, we saw in our community, Missio Day for us was evangelizing the South Bronx, taking all of those social ills into effect. <clears throat> we were approached by an entity to say, if you could start a school, where would you start it? Why would you start it? How would you start it? I said, are you serious? <clears throat> they said, serious. And then I said, well, somebody's going to pay for that. That's school. I mean, I'm clergy. I'm a theologian. I'm a preacher. I'm a social worker. I can help with all the other stuff. Excuse me, but how? So well, we're going to fund it, but we want you to dream of it. I wrote a white paper called The, the Promise Project. That's how I started The Promise Project, where there was ATI, ATD, educational advocacy, tutoring, chapel services, I mean a full faith-based one-stop. They told me to dream a dream, I dreamed a dream. So I dreamt it. That turned into uh, the Bronx Academy of Promise Charter School. <clears throat> and then we dreamed of a school that didn't just perpetuate the expectation of state regs when it came to educational outcomes and critical competencies. We stated, we want a philosophic, we want a pedagogy that aimed toward career exploration our children need more heroes than 50 Cent, Eminem, the local drug dealer, the Mexican mob, the Italian mob, Scarface. Come on. All the urban icons that we praise. You know, we need more. We need more. Um, they need to see the mailman as a hero. They need to see the police officer not as an enemy, but as a trusted hero. We need to see the judge as a trusted hero. We need to see nurses as trusted heroes. So in our school, we intentionally bring all of those categories of discipline into the school, and we meet and exceed academic, academic as stated by the Department of Education of the Board of Regents, we're an accredited charter school. And because we're a charter school, publicly we cannot proselytize. I can't say the name of Jesus, but I can live out a sermon in my governance of the school <clears throat> where they know you love yourself and you love your neighbor as you love yourself. I don't got to say Jesus to teach you how to love your neighbor. Be kind. Be nice. Really study. Really do the homework. <clears throat> and we use <clears throat> the full wraparound case management. We don't just educate the child. We educate the immigrant parent. So in our school, which was just to God be the glory, was just honored with another five years, which you only get five years in New York State Department of Education unless you have fully exceeded the expectation of the district. 
successfully, our school, to God be the glory, right, has, has superseded expectations academically. We've outperformed the state and the district every year. Every year. And so COVID came in and messed up everybody's, but even with that, we did better than we anticipated. But you grow a school, you grow from pre-K to kindergarten. So our approach has been career exploration, philosophically, intentionally, and then give these children of immigrants. That's the other thing. Our school is 100% children of immigrants, 60% Pan-African. 60% Pan, it's not a Latino school, and I'm, I'm black Latino. 60% African, African countries, uh, Ghana, Congo, West Africa. The other 40% Mexican, Central American, South American, other, Asian. We've had to be intentional by diversifying our faculty and making sure that our pedagogy is philosophically appropriate for reaching children whose parents don't speak English. So we train the parents, we provide ESL, and we know because these kids are coming from parents that are immigrants, they have lower paying jobs, they are the working poor, which means working poor means this. Here goes the poverty line, and they're working poor, they're below the poverty line. They're barely making it. So if a kid doesn't have sneakers, if a kid doesn't have a uniform, if a kid doesn't, and we know that there's hygiene issues, we have care packages, we buy the uniform, we buy the sneakers, the boots, we buy the coats, we, we get a thousand book bags filled with all the stuff they need so the parents don't gotta worry about it. If they need coats, we buy them the coats. Sounds like a church job, right? Wow. But that's our school. And because of that, another thing is this. You know, you ever had school food and said, what is this? We have a chef and the chef cooks. We pay a chef, we don't deal with school food. A chef that cooks home-cooked food. Uh, we have 90%, 99% attendance breakfast. You know that if a kid has breakfast, that kid will function better academically throughout the rest of the day? You know how many kids are starving for breakfast in the hood? So we intentionally, we meet them, contextually, and a chef cooks for them. Mira, a chef, bro. Yeah. This kid, this guy can cook. And so, and 100% uh, 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 school lunch, 99%. Our staff don't even go outside. They pay, they pay for our school lunch because they'd rather eat our food than McDonald's or Burger King or Wendy's, which are all you know in the same areas. And so a creative approach to fulfilling God's mission for us was not just planting a healthy missional church, but it was being prophetic in the sense of we've got to be incarnationally intentional by stepping into the 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 educational space where I had no experience. I never woke up with the vision to start a school, but contextualizing our ecclesiology to our missional context called us into that space. So if we we're gonna be relevant, and we can't say Jesus, but we don't have to. I don't gotta say Jesus. I can live out my faith by loving the least, the last, and the lost. And the margins. I took to get Come on, right? And so, and then for years, we've been doing this now 18 years. And I'm going to tell you, we school almost, years? yeah, school's 18 years old. Dang. We're now graduating to uh, high school. And, and you know, you know, partner with our community. But the school's 18 years. We've been renewed that many times. And so, 
when we first did this, we didn't know what we were doing. I'm a South Bronx preacher, pastor. I'm in grad school. I'm teaching MDivs, but I mean, I don't have the academic, and I learned it as I did it. Matter of fact, that when we first submitted the, the charter to the U.S. Board of Regents, bro, let me tell you, they rejected me three times. I, I was told no three times because they knew I was a, we were a Christian movement. It was a, a social justice uh, gathering of clergy, yeah, yeah. so they looked at us like progressive liberals yeah. in the system. But I'm orthodox. I'm not a liberal. I'm centered on Jesus and, you know, conservative, yeah. theologically and biblically straight up. And I'll unapologetically say that to you. But I believe that we love everybody and anybody that walks into our church or through our school, that everybody, no matter what their orientation, deserves to experience the grace and the dignity of their humanity. That's Jesus. Jesus went to the cross for everybody. And so that, that's where I'm at on that. But they rejected us three times. And the board of regent was Dr. James Merriman. I can say this publicly now because he's turned into a mentor and to a friend. Rejected us three times. By the third time, he was like, Reverend, I'm so tired of dealing with you and your advocacy. But we submitted a charter. We submitted, he says, congratulations. We're accepting your application for the Brock's Academy of Promise Charter School. And, uh, and that was 18 years ago, bro. He's not even the Board of Regent for years now. And he went with another uh, district, uh, our authorizers DOE, and there was another district, CSI, I think, or CIS. Um, anyway, he's a mentor. And when we got our first building, not that we were leasing, our building, and in uh, the South Bronx, we did the ribbon cutting. I invited Dr. Merriman to come in and to be the speaker because he had rejected us three times. And if you look at this, if you look at these pictures, you can see that our board is lit. I'm there standing with this guy, and I've got so much respect for him. And, you know, we had a partner that, you know, wasn't the best academic partner, and we didn't know that because it was something new where we were venturing into. But I know that God had given me a vision for a school that I, that, or multi, multi-faith, one-stop, but I didn't know it was ever going to really be a school. I didn't know we were ever really going to have a successful church. I didn't know how long this was going to be because I was a full-time director with the city and administrator, and I was okay with that. I was paid. You know, it was good, you know. Yeah. could pay my bills, my man. But God had so much more for me. And I don't look like or sound like where I come from. But I think that there are so many of the Mikes, so many of the Nickies, so many of the Davids, so many other men and women. So my parents didn't die addicted to drugs. At the end, my mother, when she passed away, was the vice president of the largest nonprofit that helped returning citizens reintegrate back into society called Wildcat Services Corporation. And my father, while we always had an estranged relationship, you know, institutionally, you know, he came from Puerto Rico and was left on the streets of the barrio. Sad story. I'm working on a book called The Tale of Two Cities, and the second one will be more of a, a personal reflection. But my father's story is almost the saddest story you could have. It's a common story for any Mexican, Latino, African-American in the urban. But for me, it's a, a saddest story, almost the saddest story. His whole life was behind the wall. You say he did 25. He did 25. 25, but institutionally, he was in an orphanage. He didn't have parents. His whole life was institution. His whole, his whole life was institution. 
And in that, he had nine kids with the same woman. And their love affair was so strong, they were strung out together, they did crime together, they got arraigned together, they got convicted together, and then they got saved together. At the end of his life, uh, the last two years of his life, because he wound up with, both my parents died of cancer. My mother died in 2004. My father died the week before my hooding ceremony for my doctoral program. But he was the loudest member of my church. He was the loudest member of my church. And, you know, on his deathbed, he said to me, you know, you've always been my treasure. I can never tell you that. Because your head was already big enough and I wanted you to walk yeah. it. But he said to me, he said to me, he said, you know, Mikey, call me Mikey. Mikey, I'm sorry I wasn't what I was supposed to be for you. I didn't know how. I never learned. But I'm glad that you learned. And I'm glad that you're not like me. And I'm balling. I'm, I'm. But he says to me, I bless you. I bless you. And he says, the rest of your life, the Holy Spirit's going to wrap around you. Like, like the colorful jacket that Joseph gets, that's what I see on you for the rest of your days. And I left that, uh, I left that hospice program, and I said, my father was a treasure box. And in the last minutes of his life, he was surrounded. He was a very rich man, career criminal, a murderer to society, a felon to society, who grew up alone, but in his last breath, he was surrounded by all nine of his kids and all his grandkids. And if you're gonna go, you wanna go like that. And that's a miracle too. That's a miracle. That's a miracle because he started with nobody. So when I think of restorative justice, my father's life looks like that to me. He doesn't finish the way he started. That's the restorative power of Jesus. And there's a lot of Sixtos and a lot of Mikeys and a lot of Jolies and a lot of Rachels and a lot of Nickies. We just gotta be as the church to go get them, yeah. to speak up for them, to stand for them, to say, you cannot throw this kid in jail like this. Dr. James Cohn, a mentor, I wrote my dissertation on a synthesis of black liberation theology, wrote a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. He says, we no longer hang black young men. There was no money in that, no profit. Now we just throw them in jail forever so we can make money. And he was calling to task the laws of our country that are not written for the other. They're written for a majority culture. And the church has got to wake up and prophesy, call sin, sin. Call it and then obliterate him under the blood of Jesus yeah. and by responding and to be the restorative entity is called to me. There should be no need for a goodwill, started off as a parachurch ministry, Salvation Army, parachurch ministry, Urban Youth Alliance, Young Life. These parachurch movements, they're because the church is not doing its job. Yeah. Exactly. Charter schools, because the church is not doing its job. Yeah. It's been a catatonic state especially within the West. Yeah. We have this heretical individual hermeneutic of the gospel in the West. That's why we don't see miracle signs and wonders. The resurrection happens under our noses and we're so hard-hearted we can't even see it as a resurrection. Because when a dope fiend stops shooting dope 
and is not praising Jesus, that's a resurrection. That's a Lazarus. That's a Dorcas. We got to come back as a church and prophesy and speak truth to power and let our children go. Ascent people. Yeah. Which is wild because, like, praise the Lord for these parachurch organizations, right? Praise God for them. Praise God for them. Listen, I'm a product. I said this morning in two services, I served the church because I wasn't saved in the church. Yeah. I know the importance of the church yeah. because I wasn't born in it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's an indictment against the church. Yeah, yeah that is. That's a like, so what now? <laughs> what now? Yeah, but, but dude, it, it's a trip because a lot of these parachurch organizations, uh, they'll celebrate one or two people who went out to start it, right? To lead this and pioneer this movement. And 20 years, 50 years later, they're, they're thankful for these two people, right? Yeah. Or three people. But imagine if the body was living like that. Come on. You know what I'm saying? Imagine if, like, our community That's was right. living like that. That's right. John 17 wasn't written to only the David Wilkerson's. Come on. That's and the, right. And, right? And That's David right. Wilkerson isn't even supposed to be a special thing. That's right. right? That's right. It's written to the, to the church. That's right. Us. That's right. And so it makes you think, like, Man, what would, it, what, would, what would it look like if our heart beat like God's? Yeah. What would it look like if on a daily, when you see your neighbor on the street, mm, your heart beats like the Father's, and then the other person in your church who's driving down the same street sees yeah. the same guy, and their heart beats the same as yours because That's their right. heart beats like the Father's. That's right. And, That's it, right. and it's like, man, what, what if our community was active in that way? And it, it's interesting because I, I honestly believe one of the greatest lies from Satan is uh, how everything's politicized. Yeah. How, how many times yeah. you've been called a liberal or I've been called a liberal yep. is beyond what I can count. Yeah. Uh, when I have yeah. nothing to do with that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? My allegiance has nothing to do with Do with that. liberal standing or philosophy. Nah, or nah, none of it. None of it. Yeah. I'm about the gospel. That's and it. God's people are about the gospel. That's right. You look at King. That's right. King get, got wrapped up into a whole bunch of stuff. He's like, you know, no, I'm not, I'm not on any of this. That's right. What are you talking about? That's right. And like, it, it makes me think about like the church today. I like how you say it's a sleeping giant. Yeah. Because like the church today is asleep, but she doesn't know how beautiful and how much of a blessing she could be. Yeah. When Jesus is praying about, about how we will be known in John 17. That's right. Oh my goodness. Come on, man. But when you look Come at the on. church, is that what we're what we look like? No, it's not. The most segregated day in America Sunday. Yep. Right? It was sad. And then what happens is that uh, oh Israel, oh Israel, you who slay the prophets, how I would embrace you like a hand covers her chicks. Yep. All prophets graduate to assassination. MLK, Jesus, Bonhoeffer, Malcolm X. Mandela, well, they didn't assassinate his life, they, but they took his they life. They took his life. They took his life. Yeah. 27 years. Yeah. Assassinated what could have been. Because you think he started all that trouble 27, can you imagine what he would have done in 27 years? Oh, yeah. It would have been a different Africa. Yeah. And, um, you know, this, this, it's, it's really sad. But I believe that for such a time as this, I believe all hope is not lost with the church. I still believe in the power of the church, the power of the ecclesia. I believe that we 
are going to face dark days because of the polarized, the socio-political polarization. But in the dark days, the church is going to shine the brightest. I believe there's a revival that's coming. I still believe in the church. Let me just add something that I also, because there could be somebody who reads this or looks at this or hears this narrative and say, yeah, but I didn't shoot drugs. I didn't come from that. And how could I be influential? God can't use me. No. God needs people that have never experienced this to hear this, see this, yet still dive into it by faith to be transformers and world changers. Every time a young person experiences the love of Jesus through somebody who's never been where they've been, their life is changed forever. We change worlds when we dive into really not understanding, but by faith. Yeah, when we see each other. When we see each other, when we acknowledge each other. You don't got to be an ex-gangbanger to be influential amongst gangbangers. Yeah. Which I hate when people say that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I know. I, 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 listen, uh, when, I, when I speak in places, they, they often tell me, that, yeah, but I didn't go through this. Your testimony is more prolific than mine. Because you're still saved and you didn't shoot dope in your eye. You know what I'm saying? You didn't go through it. You have, God has given you a grace that I'm not, I, I, I couldn't, I don't, I've never been able to, I had to go through something. But you know, a crisis of belief. Because you didn't go through the hood doesn't mean that you're not hood worthy. And ultimately, God still calls us to the hood. Mm-hmm. We just have to acknowledge that every hood is a hood. Mm-hmm. Even amongst the most financially affluent. They got a hood too. Mm-hmm. They got sin too. They got issues too. They need Jesus too. Mm-hmm. And we've got to be able to prophesy both ways. Yeah. Both ways. One. I'm so glad you said that because I was going to say, can we at least ask the last question for... How, what, what would you speak in, in, put on your prophetic hat, take off your pastor hat and put on your prophet hat? What would you prophetically speak to the beautiful bride that is the church? Which, by the way, like both of y'all said, is more of a hot mess maybe than ever, but I love it more than That's ever. Right. That's right. More than ever. That's right. What would you say to her like how to engage this issue of mass incarceration for the church to engage it, to touch it, to get close. I would say prophetically that the church is about to wake up and experience a revival of biblical proportion that she's never seen before. What God has done in the past is nothing compared to what God's going to do in the future through a church that is surrendered and in love with King Jesus. Not in, not in love with the president, not with a party, but with King Jesus. God is going to pour out His Spirit like He's said in the book of Joel. There's going to be prophecy. There's going to be miracles. There's going to be signs. There's going to be wonders. There's going to be life-changing movement. And already it's beginning. It's already beginning. In, other, in the global south, in parts, of, uh, in parts of China, underground church. In Russia, there's an underground church. Iran. In Africa, in Iran. In Palestine, there's a church. Behind the wall, and I want to say this, that we have become so fundamental in black and white, and life is gray. Life is gray. Life is gray for so many, but the beauty of creation is still yet to be seen by the church. And the church that God has called us to be is going to bring about very colorful transformation to this world. I believe that. I still believe in the church. So be it, Lord. Amen. Amen. Let it be so. Amen. Let it be so. Praise be to God. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for trusting me, Serge. 
this opportunity. Praise the Lord. Bless you, bro. We love you. Love you. Love you guys. Love you. My sister, my brother. Yeah, I love you.